0: A bewildering start to the week and a busy day on your radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran, and here's what you might have missed.
1: People are told in Ireland directly or indirectly that they're essentially bad, lazy people for, for having obesity. It's not fair. We don't tell any other disease group or patients with a disease in any other disease group that they're bad people, but we do to those with obesity. I give notice that Liz Truss is
2: elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. up <laughs> on <laughs>
3: During this leadership campaign, I campaigned as a Conservative and I will govern as a Conservative.
4: People say, oh sure, Polio, has gone. It's not gone. We're still here. Just because we're a smaller group, we don't need to be forgotten. And we'll start
0: on the Ray Darcy show. Flurry Knox, Trevor Jordache. all characters played by Brian Murray, one of our best-known actors. And after 52 years in the business, he was in studio in the afternoon to talk about living and working with Alzheimer's, along with his on- and off-screen partner, Una Crawford-O'Brien.
5: Now, we're joined in studio by Brian Murray and Una Crawford-O'Brien, one of Fair City's most loved couples. Uh, Of course, they play Bob and Renee, respectively. Uh, That makes sense, doesn't it? They're here in studio uh, because, as you'll know, uh, if you were reading the, the, the newspapers or the RT Guide or watching the telly last night, that Brian went public with his Alzheimer's diagnosis. Uh, he got diagnosed three years ago. He's now 73. And he's here to talk about that. And Una's here as well. Both of you are very welcome. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank I you very much. You. Um, I, I was watching Keys to My Life last night and it went through in detail Brian Murray's extensive uh, career um, I, you had like Strumpet City uh, the Irish RM uh, Bread uh, Brookside yeah, yeah. the list yeah. goes on and yeah, on and it on it goes on
6: it does a bit y- actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a bit embarrassing <laughs> sometimes you know no it's, just, <laughs> it's amazing and you started acting when you were 21 I did I signed my contract to be a member of the Abbey Theatre Company on my 21st birthday
5: right which yeah. means I'll do the maths on it for you, Brian. Yeah, yeah. You've been you've been working as a as an actor for fifty two years. Oh, there you go. That's amazing. Isn't that, is that amazing? No, yeah. I'll, I'll move the microphone. For you. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's fine. Well, yeah.
7: Isn't, well, isn't that an amazing? It time? is.
6: It is. Yeah. Well, yeah. well when working as coming out of the working class background and wanting to become an actor was kind of like a bit of a, a bit of a puzzle. Like my mother said, well, we, we know that you want to do that, but we don't know how to help you. You know. Yeah. And my father worked in the railways. And, uh, and 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 just determination. Go ahead and make sure that you can get so, so where you want to go to. Now
8: you, no, you started as a pl- as an electrician. An electrician. An electrician, yeah, yeah yes. Yeah, yeah. You saw
6: that
5: last night, yeah, yeah. and and we also saw last night that you were born into the tenements, and yeah. then when you were a teenager, you moved into a, a posh house. That's right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, with with an upstairs, mm. um, and and you had no role models in your in your community for
6: acting. No, no. not so, uh, even the notion of knowing an actor was kind of. Like you're having a laugh.
5: Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and did they think back then, Brian, that you had notions above your
6: station? You know, you are yeah, a bit of a... Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. But the, the, the real interesting thing about it all, actually, as it turns out, and that was that I went off to, 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 to become um, uh, an electrician. Yes. So um, I was working with an electrician as his, as his mate. And his name is Paddy Bren. And, uh, and I told him that I really wanted to become an actor. I said I would be happy to be an electrician but I really want to be an actor. So so that we left that and that was fine and I was out doing a job in Cabra as an electrician and uh, about mo- some months later an an electrician c- came came into where we were and he said Paddy Brennan wants to give you a piece of information that the Abbey the 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 the, the, the Abbey the Abbey Theatre the Abbey are doing something or other in um in what was the matter community? It, 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 it was the, the matter day community center, and uh, he said that they're, um, they're talking about anybody who would be interested in being involved in the theater. and Paddy Brennan said that you know, Brian Murray should go up to the matter day community center and see what he did. That's he get where it started, it. and that's where it started.
5: That so in sense. through the electrician, intacting. Yeah, 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 exactly. A, 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 an odd circuitous yeah. route, but it's worked <laughs> exactly. out for you. But Can I it, say he right.
8: can't change a light bulb?
6: <laughs> <laughs> it's not that he can't, he just doesn't want to.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, that must have been a, d- a delight for you last night, Una,
8: seeing all of those clips. <laughs> ah, yeah, it was in, great. In, in, in I actually got hour. very emotional, yeah. you know, watching it. And it, it was great, it was great. And he's had... And I think that's why with the Alzheimer's, to see that whole big body of work there and that, like, the worst thing he can lose is his memory, really. Yeah. You know, that, um, for learning the lines.
5: And what about, we'll, we'll get on to all of that, but what about the, the chats around going public with it? How did they go at home between the two E? you?
8: Um, easy. Right. That was the easy one, really. Mm-hmm. Um, the hard part of it was Brian accepting it in a way. That took a while. Um but once he acknowledged it, once he, he faced it, that was the easy part. Because, well, Brian is a performer as well as everything else. So he 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 felt that if he could come out and talk to people and tell them about his journey and show them that it's not the end of the line, that he can,
9: mm.
8: uh, and that's why he decided he wants to to so he to do it. And he spoke to the Alzheimer's Society and. That's
6: how it happened.
0: And Ray asked Brian if he suspected that something was different.
6: I did. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yes, I did. And it came, it came out as an actor because, uh, you know, up until um, all this happened, I was able to kind of like take a, a three-page scene yeah. and just go through it in 15 minutes and I'd know every single line. And and you were known in the business. And and it was, I was, I just sucked up the the stuff. And then suddenly it started to kind of go down and go down and then it disappeared. Mm. And I was aware that it's, this is my brain or my memory is, is there's something wrong with it now.
5: And at the beginning, I'm wondering, did you just put it down to
6: getting a bit old? I, I did put it down to yeah. getting a bit old, uh, and 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 I, I I didn't really have a word for it. There was Alzheimer's wasn't a big thing that it is now, like, um, and all that. So you know, eventually we found our way and discovered that that's what it is.
8: Yeah. We were doing a play, and um, I just noticed that he was having great difficulty learning the lines, which was just not him, and uh, that was in the January of. 2019, was it? It's three years ago, anyway. And, yeah, yeah. um, and we got through the play. Yeah. And yeah. a wonderful play by Deirdre Kinahan. Halcyon, Halcyon Days. Days. And um, I suggested to him then one day on a beach yeah. in the middle of Kerry and there was nobody else on it <laughs> that maybe he would go see about it. And he accepted that immediately.
5: And Brian, we've spoken on numerous occasions before. It's always been yeah. about a play yeah, or a yeah, TV yeah, show yeah, or yeah, yeah, a city yeah. or whatever. Uh, a thing that I don't know about you, you know, what sort of person are you when it comes to that sort of thing? Do do would you now once you heard the word Alzheimer's, would you have gone after it and investigated it online, or what, what's your approach? To well, well like I,
6: I, I would have gone in exactly to do that, yeah, and uh, and um and find out what it is, yeah, uh, how is how do you get rid of it, and how bad is it? Um, so you, just to do everything that you could do. But the, the thing that broke my heart was the fact that I always regarded myself as an actor and I al- al- always regarded myself as capable of, 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 of learning it fast. Yes. And I knew it was going. Oh, yeah. I knew it was going. Going.
5: That was one of your trademarks, yeah, uh, yeah. along with the the the, the, the good looks <laughs> and, uh, and oh the well. charm <laughs> and all
6: that. Charming, I'm charming. <laughs> well, you are charming. You,
5: you, you are charming. Of course, one of the things you said there was, you know, how do you how do you get rid of it? But the, yeah. this is the thing you you yeah. don't. You
6: don't. It's, you don't. It, it's incurable. No, yeah. no, it's incurable, and and you know, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty heartbreaking, mm. really but we you know but we never died a winter yet and we we'll, we we'll, we'll just keep going go, going forward
5: the 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 denial thing i can that's completely understandable isn't yeah, it that you, that yeah. you would you would rail against it um mm-hmm. uh, and uh, hope that they, mm-hmm. they got it wrong i suppose mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. The, that's the thing
8: and it's a huge thing to take on because when you hear the word alzheimers and you know, as somebody explained to us, it's like an umbrella. The dementia, yeah, and um, the spokes underneath are all the various types yeah. of of dementia, and Alzheimer's is just one of but many. But it's the biggest one. Yeah, yeah I think it's
5: I think it's something like eighty percent of people yes. with dementia have Alzheimer's. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah.
8: So, like, it did take Brian a good while to process it. Yeah, and um, and and he put it down to age a lot.
5: Right. Mm. The other thing is, and I don't know if this. Happened with you, Brian, is that, and, and I would imagine it did, because you're such a brilliant actor, that people develop little strategies yes. to disguise the fact. Yes, yes, <laughs> that, yes. yes. <laughs> that, you know. Sometimes
10: being an actor is very, very <laughs> yeah,
3: well worth yeah, while. Yes, yes. yes. yes,
5: yes. <laughs> so, oh, well, yes. <laughs> yeah.
7: so,
6: so you you had little little things you used, little devices, little, little strategies. Devices, yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 it has to be said as well that in 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 RTE in Fair City, uh, with with. Bridgie and... Bridgie de is the producer, yeah. I mean, it was just fantastic, the support that yeah. has been given to me. Do you know what I mean? And With when me? did you have to tell them? Um, how, long, how long ago was it since I told them?
8: In a way, it was a gradual thing. Was it, yes. There was no big announcement as such. They began to realise themselves there was a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Um, and that was really how it came yeah, about. Yeah. But you they've see, been yeah, brilliant. They've facilitated. Oh, they've the been fantastic. 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 Absolutely. Really, really I mean, f- everyone from the other actors to the directors, um, all the crew, the staging. I mean, staging are brilliant. They produce things for him to hide the script under and yeah. there's, there's always <laughs> yeah. something.
11: You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and oh,
8: you no, see, been fantastic, they wouldn't have known brilliant. it. A lot of them wouldn't really have, have acknowledged it as such because if Brian can't remember something... He'll very often make it up. He's an actor. Yeah. Can't remember the next lines. Make them up. Yeah.
6: Yeah. What day is today?
8: <laughs> Saturday.
5: Yeah. But just on the day, because I believe you have whiteboards. You have a whiteboard in your bedroom, yes. for yeah. example. Yes. So my name was on that this morning. Yes. So all right. Oh, okay. yes. All right. It's still there. The <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. yeah, it okay. yeah. be wiped the door. Okay. Ceremoniously wiped out. Exactly. So, so that tells you. What, what's yeah. coming for yeah. the day? But this
6: is this, is this is the venue for the day. And right. that's yeah. what she sees first thing in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Una Crawford O'Brien and Brian Murray from The Radar C show. And on today with Claire Byrne, the shame and lack of understanding around obesity and its genetic link.
12: Now, if you've struggled with weight loss throughout your life, you'll be very interested to hear what my next guest has to say. Dr John Connealy is a bariatric surgeon in the Matter Hospital and the Matter Private, and he believes that evolution could be partially to blame for Ireland's growing obesity rate. He's one of only a handful of surgeons carrying out gastric sleeve operations in Ireland, and he says that as a country, we need to get over our sn- Knobbery about weight loss surgery. Dr John Keneally, thank you for joining us today and good morning to you. Good morning, Claire. We are hearing more and more, aren't we, about gastric sleeves and the gastric bypass lately. Why do you think there has been such an increase in interest and demand for this type of surgery?
1: Um, Well, a couple of things really. I suppose the the pandemic of the last couple of years uh, through obesity and its um, uh, complications into a pretty stark uh, relief when you consider that um, up until the end of last year, uh, a third of the global um, mortality rate, the only associated condition uh, patients who succumbed to uh, COVID from had was obesity. Um, So that garnered a lot of of coverage. And um, the other reason it's become, uh, I suppose, much more prevalent, or we're hearing more about it now in Ireland, is that we're just catching up with the international trends, metabolic surgery, as it's more uh, appropriately called nowadays, Has been around for more than fifty years, but we're at least thirty years behind the global trends in Ireland, and so, bit by bit, we're catching up and realizing that there's an an enormous amount of benefit um, in the management of obesity to be garnered from surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, But but unfortunately, I suppose the thing that's put it into into the news the most has been the amount of medical tourism uh, in the obesity surgery space, which we've had to deal with.
12: Yeah, we'll talk about that in detail in a while, but I'm just interested in your own case because you came back to Ireland from Canada around 2015, isn't that right?
1: That's right. As a trainee coming through Ireland, I graduated from college in in 2000 and I always had an interest in obesity as a disease entity coming through my training. My particular subspecialist interest as a a consultant would be in complex uh, liver, pancreas and transplantation surgery. But um, because I wanted to be able to perform um, a lot of that type of surgery with minimally invasive techniques, I undertook to learn... Um, bariatric surgery as well as part of my training and so when I came back from Canada in 2015 I kind of had a dual skill set mm-hmm. where I was trained as a laparoscopic bariatric surgeon and also in liver and pancreas surgery.
12: But there was a huge difference between the amount of bariatric surgery that was happening here and, and where you had come from in Canada.
1: Oh absolutely yeah, we we, in many respects were not even scratching the surface with what, what we do the, the, my mentors and trainers in Canada couldn't believe uh, the fact that at the time that I started in training over there in 2011, uh, there was only one publicly funded service in Ireland, which remains the case. There was one surgeon who had a part-time interest in it, uh, purely principally because uh, his senior, co- his his uh, medical colleague, Professor Donald O'Shea, had convinced him to uh, take on the surgery. We are doing pitifully small numbers by comparison with the rest of the world.
0: So Claire asked Dr. John Keneally about attitudes to weight gain in Ireland.
12: But you know, in Ireland, we always said, uh, certainly when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, well, we might have a few extra pounds, but we're not as bad as the North Americans. Now, that's not the case now. And are you saying we need to get over that? We need to get a grip on that fact that 60% of us are obese?
1: Absolutely. We are the second uh, worst affected country in Europe now that um, our our neighbours in the UK are no longer counted in the European numbers. Um, And when it comes to obesity... uh, We may not have as many at the top end of the scale like you see on the my 600-pound live TV shows, but we have an enormously uh, overweight population and we have a massively underdeveloped approach to the management of obesity as a disease, uh, which we really need to do something about because it's costing us literally billions a year.
12: And talk to me a little bit about why you believe there's a snobbery attached to the type of surgery that you do.
1: Well the assumption is that it's in some way cosmetic, uh, that weight loss surgery is just kind of a cop-out for people who just couldn't be bothered to control their diets and maybe get out and exercise, which speaks to a spectacular lack of understanding about how obesity works. Obesity is a chronic, lifelong, relapsing, remitting illness. Uh, There's very clear evidence to back that up now and in jurisdictions where obesity is managed as a chronic, relapsing, uh, remitting, lifelong illness, it is managed exceptionally well. Surgery plays a part in that. It isn't. It isn't the mainstay by any means. Um, but the the fact is that in Ireland we don't understand, or at least we're unwilling to accept, that uh, obesity is a disease, and so we don't treat it.
12: But surely we have to begin by controlling it at the beginning. You know, the two-year-old uh, child turning up for a checkup and they're overweight or obese. That's where the problem begins. For,
1: for sure, uh, we have. Um, uh, like like the rest of the, the so-called Western or developed world, we have uh, uh, a, an emerging um, healthcare tidal wave, if you like, uh, in terms of childhood and adolescent obesity, uh, which reflects environmental and socioeconomic issues uh, from the time of birth. Uh, principally, but when you look across socio-economic groupings, it's not just uh, specific uh, socio-economic socioeconomic groups where it's a problem in childhood, it's affecting our population across the board Um, and it's a a function of a variety of things. Obesity is a manifestation of what we are physiologically in our modern environment uh, with manifestations in terms of some behavioural elements, but very profound biochemical and evolutionary biological elements that drive the disease.
12: Okay, so Are we we at an an evolutionary inflection point then?
1: Well, if you look across the world, two-thirds of the adult population is overweight or obese. So as a species now, in the last 150 years, we have become very much bigger. Uh, And that's a function of the fact that we are no longer as physically active uh, as we used to be. I mean, we don't have to outrun predators, hunt down prey and migrate over long distances. We live in an environment where machines do lots of work for us. And have sedentary lifestyles in many ways and we're surrounded by um, uh, food supply almost in most portions of the world that is uh, no longer as uh, insecure and unsafe as it was going back a couple of hundred years. So We have a constant food supply, we don't work as much and the food that we eat is very different to what we used to eat. It's frequently uh, either full of pro- highly processed ingredients, which our body, bodies don't deal with terribly well, or has been nutrient-enriched, particularly carbohydrate-enriched. And carbohydrates our bodies love because they're very energy-efficient. You get lots of energy benefit from very little effort involved in digest- eating and digesting carbohydrates. But the problem is that we, we develop uh, profound abnormalities of our energy maintenance systems within our bodies and our energy storage systems, and as a result, we end up storing huge quantities of energy in the forms of fat, which in certain uh, uh, elements of the human population worldwide will be fine, will be tolerated well, but for huge proportions of it, it won't be. So over time, we're going to find that we either change the way we eat, drink, live uh, and behave or the type of human that is going to survive into the future is going to be metabolically the, the type of human that tolerates carrying much more fat.
0: And as for the advice of eat less, move more.
1: It will rank up there. In, in years to come, we'll look at eat, eat less, do more uh, as some of the worst uh, public health advice that's ever been given because, quite simply, it doesn't work. And all you have to do is ask anybody who's attempted a diet uh, whether or not that works. Uh, obesity is a, a fairly insidious um, condition, and one of, the, one of the nastiest elements of it is that your body has a set point when it comes to weight, which, as you gain weight, resets upwards. So let's say you weigh 120 kilos and ideally you should be around 90 kilos. Every effort you make to get below 120 kilos, your body is going to mitigate because your body will want to stay at 120 kilos. You just ask anybody who's dieted, no matter what they've done, they do everything they can. And when they stop, because most of those lifestyle modifications aren't terribly sensible or at least realistic in terms of maintaining them long term. When they stop those efforts, their body gets back to where its set point has been. Take a that sample of a hundred people, for example, and you know a, a rough example uh, of a hundred people who attempt by lifestyle and dietary modifications alone to get back to a healthier weight. Maybe three or five in a hundred will manage it. The rest can't, and that's not because they're lazy or weak-willed. It's because the biology of their disease subvents every effort they've made. So and we see- until we start accepting that, we're, we keep sending people down this this rabbit hole of eat less, do more which is doomed to failure.
12: So the only answer then is to reduce the size of your stomach?
1: No. Surgery is is one of a variety of different uh, angles uh, from which you can attack the disease. If you consider any other chronic relapsing remitting illnesses, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, COPD, any of these things, there isn't just one option in terms of treatment. There's usually a graduated approach there. Prevention, as as anyone will tell you, in public health is better than curing. So, you know, as, as Professor O'Shea has been um, uh, stating in the media for a couple of decades now, we need a, a well-articulated, you know, holistic approach to the management of obesity at a population level in Ireland. Part of which uh, should involve adequate surgical services because until we have adequate surgical services, Uh, we will have patients continuing to travel overseas, and when they do, um, many of them will be at the mercy of poor quality, fairly mercenary services. Surgery helps for sure but it's not uh, a magic bullet in its own right. There's lots more that needs to be challenged to manage a disease that has psychological, behavioural, biochemical, biological uh, elements to it.
12: Okay, let's talk a little bit about people who are travelling overseas. And we're hearing more and more about this now, people travelling to clinics abroad to have gastric bands or gastric sleeves done. Tell us about the impact that has on services here.
1: Sure. So the first thing to say is that because our public services are essentially are so are so inadequate. Um, patients are desperate and they have no choice but to travel. And when people are desperate, they're they are at the mercy of mercenary services. What we're seeing since uh, the end of lockdown in 2020 has been an explosion in the amount of medical tourism for metabolic surgery. And as a result... Um, depending on where people have been going we've been seeing a dramatic increase in the rate of complications arising out of the surgery. We don't know how many people are travelling for the surgery and I'm sure lots of people are doing really, really well and have done fine after their surgery. Those who have done well you'd be concerned about because they definitely haven't had the kind of preparation that that is required in a proper multidisciplinary setting and they're definitely not getting the kind of follow-up that they require and remember it's a lifelong disease there will be relapses in the future so if you're not getting any support long term you'd be concerned about the likely success long-term of the surgery. The people we're seeing coming back with complications, the number that we're seeing far outstrip what one could consider to be an acceptable rate of complications. We think, but we don't know because we don't know how many people are going. But my colleagues in uh, upper GI surgery and the, the handful of us, about six of us in the country who have expertise in bariatric surgery, have seen an explosion in complications arising out of sleeve and bypass surgery overseas. Um, what it what impact it's having on public services is that man, the management of these patients who have uh, developed complications from surgery overseas is costing us more to look after in the public hospitals in Ireland than we are spending on public sector Metabolic surgery in Ireland in the first place, which is an utterly ludicrous scenario.
12: And Claire
0: asked about bariatric
12: surgery. Okay, I know that the surgery you perform is less invasive than uh, than other surgeries, and you specialise in this area. But that's not to say that bariatric surgery isn't um, a life changing surgery to go through. You've got to change how you eat. You've got to change how you socialise. Your life has changed forever after you have this.
1: It is, but when it's done right, it's 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 change for the better. We we patients who come to us have been struggling with their weight, oftentimes for decades, and there's a huge amount of uh, personal negativity that comes along with it, and and social negativity. People are told in Ireland directly or indirectly that they're essentially bad, lazy people for for having obesity. It's not fair. We don't tell any other disease group our patients with a disease in any other disease group that they're bad people, but we do to those with obesity. And once you help them to understand how their disease process works, once you help them to identify what the red flags are, the things they need to avoid into the future, what the triggers are for them, particularly when there are psychological elements that are prevalent for them. And when you get them to a healthier weight after surgery and show them then how, how they can manage their disease going forward so that they stay at a healthy level, can identify when relapses are on the horizon and can, can mitigate them as a result, it's transformative for people. You give them back control over their lives. You, you give them back control over their health. You reduce their cancer risk to that of the normal population. You reduce their uh, sudden cardiac or neurological uh, catastrophe and death rates to that of essentially the normal population. And you let them move around comfortably again. It's utterly transformative surgery when it's done properly.
0: Dr John Keneally from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, a new Prime Minister for Britain.
13: Liz Truss, as you've been hearing, will be the next UK Prime Minister after she won the Conservative Party leadership vote. She defeated rival Rishi Sunak in a ballot of party members. Liz Truss, who's 47, will tomorrow become the third female Prime Minister in British history, following the footsteps of Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. The result was announced in the past hour by the chairman of the Backbench 1922 committee, Graham Brady.
2: The total number of valid votes given to each candidate was as follows. Rishi Sunak, 60,399, Liz Truss, 81,326. Therefore, I give notice that Liz Truss is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist
11: Party.
3: During this leadership campaign, I campaigned as a Conservative and I will govern as a Conservative. (laughs) And my friends, we need to show that we will deliver over the next two years. I will deliver a bold plan to cut taxes and grow our economy. I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills but also dealing with the long-term issues we have on energy supply.
13: The incoming British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, speaking within the last hour. Let's talk now to Peter Foster, Public Policy Editor at the Financial Times. Very good afternoon to you, Peter, and welcome to the News at One.
9: Good afternoon.
13: So the result when it came was perhaps narrower than some of the earlier opinion mm. polls in this contest had suggested, about well, 57 to 43, if I'm allowed to round the numbers uh, up and down. And of course, we know Liz Truss lost the, the vote among Conservative Party MPs. She's a very tall in-tray of pressing issues. Will there be any honeymoon period, do you think?
9: Well, it's going to be brief, isn't it? Uh, We just seen today uh, the Kremlin saying that um, Nord Stream 1, which is the main gas pipeline uh, from Russian gas into Europe, is pretty much closed indefinitely until uh, the West uh, raises sanctions, which I don't see happening anytime soon. That immediately puts the heat on Liz Truss. So, insofar as the honeymoon, it's going to be very short. And I think if she gets it wrong, uh, and I'm really referring to, to her plan to tackle energy bills, household energy bills, if she gets that wrong, she'll lose people. Very quickly. Conversely, um, you know, there's lots of political noise around, but the overwhelming issue is this issue about energy bills. And if she gets it right, there's an opportunity there for her to uh, cement her place and, and get some breathing space for us, for what will be, as you say, a absolutely daunting in tray of, of issues for, the, for for her when she gets her feet under the desk in number 10. There's also
13: some of the unfinished business in relation to Brexit, particularly the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now she was an, a, a Remainer during the the Brexit <laughs> referendum, but she's very much seen as the uh, as the candidate who was backed by the uh, uh, by the the euroskeptics uh, by the Brexiteers. Uh, what do you think she's going to do in relation to the Protocol? She was guiding the legislation through, which would have allowed or will allow the British government to to walk away from that commitment.
9: It's a very good question and I think from my conversations, the general consensus is that she has very little political wiggle room on that. It's important to understand that that bill was, you know, got up by Liz Truss, uh, attempts to soften it were blocked by Liz Truss. That cohort of the European Research Group, the, the the hard Brexit wing of the Tory party, is absolutely the core of her support. And therefore, while she may well tack into the centre on some of the economic stuff, particularly her more ambitious supply-side tax-cutting agenda, uh, she may find she has less room for manoeuvre on the Northern Ireland piece. I guess one thing that may simply dwarf that agenda will be the scale of this energy crisis uh, if if it gets worse. It may be that actually uh, even the right wing of the party Uh, uh, decides that uh, an immediate confrontation with Brussels is not the solution. Mm -hmm. And then you may see some of the things that we've been reporting, which is perhaps a a trigger of Article 16, which might be, uh, that's the safeguard clause in the protocol, you know, which might be a provocation, but actually may also create some breathing space in terms of negotiating more narrowly on trying to fix elements within the protocol rather than seeking to unilaterally uh, uh, rip it up, which I think would provoke even in this gas crunch time, uh, a pretty draconian response from Brussels.
13: Yeah, well, I mean, in, in terms of that breathing space, that wriggle room, the, the, the timeline, well, it, at least potentially is pretty tight here, isn't it, Peter? Because the EU has legal action pending, which will be triggered, what, towards the end of
9: next week. September 15 will effectively mean the end of the grace periods. You remember those grace periods that were agreed by both sides to help mm. phase in the protocol, and then they were extended unilaterally by the Brits, And Brussels, whilst it didn't officially endorse that, tacitly agreed, uh, and it suspended its infringement proceedings. And once this Northern Ireland bill came in, Brussels took that as a symbol, essentially, that the UK didn't want to negotiate. And there have been no negotiations since February. Liz Truss has had that file as Foreign Secretary. She refused to negotiate, partly because she was campaigning to be uh, a prime minister uh, uh, in, uh, in fact, if not in name. So we'll have to see whether... Um, you know, she is prepared to create some space for negotiation. The official line is we want a negotiated settlement. I think the question is whether she's prepared to open a negotiation on the substance of the protocol or is going to continue to demand that it's essentially fundamentally rewritten, turned on its head, which is what the effect of that legislation would be. Before she became prime minister, she was very clear with Brussels that she wouldn't negotiate mm-hmm. unless Brussels was prepared to reopen the protocol. So it's, you know... we. Intentionally back to that old stalemate. And I, again, I don't know how much political wiggle room she'll have to move on that.
0: Peter Foster from the News at One with Brian Dobson. And it was a bit of a mystery story starting the afternoon's live line and caller Dave.
10: This is a mystery which we've, we've solved many a mystery in our day. I think this <laughs> this one will beat us now. So
2: It'll be up there
10: anyway. We'll be up there. You <laughs> yeah. walked out your hall door into your lovely driveway where you normally park your car. Well, it's
2: not actually a driveway. It's just it's a it's a garden, but it's an elevated garden by about five and a half feet high. Okay. From the footpath, and I came out on um, one, or Thursday afternoon. Okay. And there, in my front garden, are four RSJs.
10: Now, explain what RSJs are for the uninitiated. An RSJ.
2: You're getting an, you know, say one room into another, and you have to put a support up, yeah, the upstairs, you know, section of the house. Uh, you'd be using an RSJ there. Uh, one of them is about 12, 13 foot long, the other two are about, say, 10 foot, and there's one down about 15 foot long.
10: They are massive steel beams.
0: Oh, yeah,
2: I mean, you're not going to put these on the crossbar, you're biting off the road.
10: No way. And if you went out, I'm not advising this. Could you lift even, lift one off the ground by, at one end? No, 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 no. no they're no. extraordinarily heavy. You oh know, yeah, you it, would have had
2: to use, you know, a truck with a heist.
10: Yeah, but surely, did you not hear anything? Did no one knock no, I, on the I, door?
2: I, I, I was out the back, there was no knock on the door, it was a loud bell. You'd hear the bell out in the garden, you'd hear it out in the lane. And uh, no, there was no delivery docket, nothing.
10: Nothing signed for?
2: Nothing, nothing at all.
10: And do you know how much they're worth?
2: I don't know, somebody said to me around three, 4,000.
10: Yeah, you're bang on. And you know, the other thing is they're doubling in value because steel has doubled in price in the last six to eight months. And it's, yeah, it's, it's that, going up and up and up.
2: I oh, know, yeah, well, they're brand new. There's a few markings on them, you know, chalk markings on them. So I'd say they're cut for size. And is there
10: any yes. is there any name on them, like Hammond Lane or... No, no, is, no, 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 no. And did, did any neighbours see anything...
11: Like I must have no, taken them.
2: How
10: would it take them to drop them into your garden? Twenty minutes. Oh, I don't know because I, I
2: said I was out the back. I didn't hear no nope. All the shops across the road, me, nobody saw a thing. There's nobody has CCTV. And
10: they're, uh, not, they're, no, they're, they're not debris from a Russian space station,
2: are they? <laughs> I don't know. It was the other kind of. It's just yeah. You know, they're not getting better any any better looking on any day. Yeah, I mean the days go by.
10: And what can you like?
11: The, there's if, something I can do if, but if you if,
10: if you find something that's not yours which yeah. is not you just bring it to the guard station well you can't bring these
2: anywhere <laughs> you
11: know? I mean no I look I mean I, I've no
2: problem with anybody kind of dropping stuff here like it's a mistake is a mistake I've no problem with that I just don't I just don't want them doing any damage
10: but surely if it had if it was a mistake yeah. these are so big and so valuable and so heavy so oh, heavy yeah, yeah. Surely the the air code where they should have been delivered. If 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 it's a mistake frame we're putting on it, surely yeah, they yeah. would have phoned a company to say, "Listen, I need I need me four RSJs for me oh, yeah. massive extension out the back. Where are they?" You
2: know, well, I thought they would have been gone Friday because I thought there'd be a builder there going, Yo, first may, uh, "You know, where's my missing
10: the the missing How RSJs?"
2: Just and obviously nothing's turned up. So, uh, well, see, anything, anybody listening, if anybody knows anything about them, that's all.
10: Yeah, we're tweeting a photograph of them. But they're they're yeah. red. They're red, which they are. Oh they're red, do. yeah. Yeah, they normally are. Uh, they're it's rolled steel joists, that's what they god the strongest you can. I, yeah, you can I, get. I don't
11: know what you call them. Oh, I'm they'd bad, hold big
10: They'd hold up a house. Oh jeez, yeah, the rest. Now yours is diagonal. You your garden is is paved. That's why I thought it was a, a Yeah, a, a, it's kind of a co- copper locking on it. Copper locking, okay. And they yeah. they they were laid diagonally. Yeah. Now, can you push them to one side so you can oh, get? No, you? I'm
2: not even going to attempt it. I don't have a great back, I'm not going to attempt to near them.
10: But you to, that means you have to walk over them every day.
2: Oh, no, 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 no! They're on the front. I don't have, you know, as I said, like the steps up to warehouse, so um, okay, I don't have to go near them.
10: Oh, thank God!
2: Now, would you yeah, not no. just put
10: a sign up saying anyone wants a few spare RSJs? Yeah,
2: <laughs> put a sign up. I need it for sale.
10: So, yeah. one theory we heard was from one company said it might just be a, a, an incorrect digit in the air code. Yeah, I, I've
2: no idea, Joe. Don't. don't but surely, know? if
10: you're delivering products, yeah, that's worth nearly four grand. I don't know if that yeah, includes yeah. VAT or not. That's worth nearly four grand. Surely you'd knock on the door. Oh, I say,
2: know, I know, I
10: know. It's not a, a. It's not a prank, is it, Dave?
2: No, I mean I, I don't know who's going to put the, you know, like I know a lot of lads that would be capable of doing it but not for uh, four RSJs.
10: And what did you do in real life?
2: What did I do? I was yeah. a stonemason.
10: Oh, you're a stonemason.
2: Yeah.
10: But well, that's you that, marble
2: fireplaces.
10: Oh, lovely. That's marvellous. But I mean, you're not but, but that's far removed from Needing oh, yeah, needing no, RSJs. Absolutely. Oh,
2: absolutely, yeah,
10: yeah. And it wasn't your birthday or anything, was it? Dave? Oh, no, no, no. no.
0: <laughs> and Dave wasn't the only one who has trouble with this kind of thing.
10: Michael Nocton, when when the um, the the few tonne yeah. of topsoil was delivered yeah. to your neighbour's garden instead of your yeah. garden, what did that's you right. what did you have to do?
11: Well, <laughs> the neighbour the neighbour contacted me. It's a, it's a good few years ago now, no yeah, okay. Yeah, right? okay, But the neighbour contacted me and said, did you order a, a lorry load of topside? I said, I did. And well, they said, they delivered it to my house. He oh, said, can you luck. come and move it? You know? But but the thing was, Joe, the crazy thing about it was, there's a big sign outside the, the crash, you know? So I can't understand why the driver delivered it in next door. And did, do
10: the, did the driver or the company take any responsibility for moving it to the well, proper I, well, address? No, no,
11: no, but they gave it to me free of charge in the end. Let's put it that way.
10: And how did you move it?
11: Well, I had to get a couple of lads on the street to move it with wheelbarrows and things, and I'm talking <laughs> about a lorry load. I'm not talking yeah, about know, a van load. It's one of those things that they automatically lift up and it's dumped onto <laughs> your ground, like you know. A, it was a massive, it was a massive amount of top top sight, which we needed. Okay.
10: Okay, of course.
11: But it, it it took it took a good few hours to move it and calling people out in you know at the last moment and people helped out and. Uh, the, the bottom line was, I, I can't understand why he delivered it in there in the first place. When I mean, there's a big sign outside the crash, you know. And and uh, it, 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 in the end, like they didn't charge me for it. I wasn't going to pay anyhow. Like you know, if I you lift
14: hat.
0: <laughs> Michael, there. Then John called Joe.
11: Yeah,
14: yeah, I was just saying in in regards to the beams. Like whoever has dropped them, they'll come back. And uh, the beams so. themselves, like they are house specific. They sound to me like they've been cut for an attic conversion or something like that. We're in construction ourselves. But if he needs the beams moved, sure, I could head down with a couple of lads. We can move them to one side so they're not in his driveway at all. I oh, wouldn't no, 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 be no, no. worried too much. They come back and take the beams back to you. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's not uh, an obstruction or anything like that at all. Oh, they're not. But do, in you the way. Want to,
14: do you want to move no, like
2: them? The garden is raised up a five and a half foot from the path.
10: But do you want to so move to, you, What? How do you move them, John?
14: We manually lift and we have straps, so we raise them up and we put them on straps and you'd have two lads on either side. Okay. and we carry them down to where they're going.
2: No, he he put a log actually in under one end he obviously he took this he took when they landed that with the straps, right, they probably had to put the straps underneath. Yeah. So they they've one log in under it so you get a strap in under it.
14: Oh fair play, yeah. So Yeah, yeah, to make them easy you now to lift back off the ground. So now yeah, yeah but yeah. well
10: well that disproves the bank robbery theory, doesn't it?
14: Yeah, and the and the size that's on it, the four one three oh. Yeah. That's probably the overall length, 'cause when we're ordering beams, we'd give our engineer the length from wall to wall. They give it then to the fabricator and he'll fabricate and he'll split the beams in the middle then for an night conversion or, or Okay.
10: And 4130 oh, what 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 metric is that in? What measurement is that in? But, it'd be uh, no
14: meters, millimeters and meters. Okay. So it'd be four thousand mils.
10: Okay. Yeah.
2: Um, as I said, that's about 14
10: or 15 foot that one anyway but John um, are we right in saying that each 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 set of beams for each building is spe- very specific to that building
14: yeah yeah they're house specific we've we've done about maybe 40 conversions in the one estate up in City West and each individual house will be different by wow. some by 30 mil, some by 40 mil. so wow. they are house specific so the builder who has dropped them there will come back for them there's no issue there
10: you think so, yeah? Ah, hundred percent. And what do you do? Do you do attic conversions, Sean?
14: We do, yeah, yeah. We're based in South Dublin. We do attic conversions, we do extensions, renovations. And and are,
10: all you, that are, you, are you out the door with attic conversions?
14: We are, yeah, yeah. We're um, we're multi award winning, so we've we've a good name behind us. We're going there since two thousand and eight, so yeah, we're um, very busy at the moment.
10: Very busy. And what about retrofitting and all that carry on?
14: We do, we do shop fitting, we do renovations, we do new builds, we do one off builds, we do everything.
10: Wow. And many of you got working.
14: So we have four direct and then we have a lot of subcontractors.
10: OK, good lad. How long are you in the business?
14: Uh, well, I'm in the business a long time. My father was a builder as well. But JK Home Improvements has been going since 2008.
10: Well done. But as I say, what's I want an attic. I don't want. But if I wanted an attic conversion, which a lot of people do, how long? Is there a waiting list?
14: There is a waiting list, yeah. At the moment, we're only pricing per every three months because prices are changing so much. Of course. So it would be kind of about three, four months of a waiting list. And that conversion generally takes between four to five weeks to complete.
10: OK, and if I was to, if I was to order those four RSJs, what type you, of delivery time is on them?
14: Generally, we order a steel the week before we're starting the attic and we'd give it to our fabricator and he'd have them fabricated for the Monday morning oh, we're okay. starting. Oh, very so good. I'd say whoever they had delivering them beams was for a job that was starting this morning.
10: Oh, good point. So they'd be in situ?
14: Yes, exactly. So they're ready then for the fairs this morning. So someone, someone is driving around looking for that steel this morning for a job. <laughs> <to start.
0: laughs> That's John on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne 7,000 survivors of polio in Ireland and Evelyn O'Rourke was hearing some of their
12: stories In March of 2020 with the arrival of Covid we all quickly became familiar with new phrases such as social isolation and physical distancing but for over 7,000 people living in Ireland who are survivors of polio the sudden isolation and worry was all too familiar as they continued to battle the disease that caused so much heartache here more than 50 years ago and with British authorities declaring a national incident in June after traces of the virus were discovered in sewage samples across several London boroughs, polio is back as a concern. Now, Evelyn O'Rourke has met up with some of these remarkable polio and post-polio survivors to hear more about their stories and a book that they have contributed to. So, Evelyn, introduces first of all to the polio survivors of Ireland. This is the advocacy and support group at the heart of this work. Yes,
15: indeed. And they are working really hard, Claire, to maintain the independence and dignity dignity really of these survivors and you'll hear about that dignity in a minute, amazing group of people but they support them at work, in the home and otherwise and their objectives really are to create awareness and provide information on the needs of polio survivors and on post-polio syndrome again we'll hear more about that in a minute but just to support and advocate on behalf of them and their overall message that they want to send out there is that they want to transform the legacy of polio and that with polio eradicated in Ireland they're saying look we need help because as they put it they need to finish it well by looking after ageing polo, polio survivors survivors. And
12: we're all familiar with the term but will you remind us what polio is and how it's defined? Indeed
15: well it's highly infection viral disease, largely affects children, it's transmitted by person to person and it invades the nervous system and there was of course, I mean I would remember the stories you probably would too, yeah. huge fear around this disease back in the day when so many children were left with lifelong disabilities so I started by visiting one of those people who was a child back in the day Anna Shanahan or Anne Shanahan, she's originally from Limerick, she had wonderful family life in Limerick and she's been a very happy adult all along, but she was diagnosed with polio when she was very young, and she was treated until the age was of fourteen in hospital settings. So here, Anne Shannon tells us a little bit more where she met me and talked to me in her home. Good morning, Hi, Anne. I'm Evelyn. How are you? Come Can in. I... You're welcome. Come in. Where do, do you want me the the to go? Kitchen, you... The kitchen is perfect. Kitchen. You have it all organised. Uh, to tell. Well, let's grab a seat. Thanks so much for letting us in today. I'm you lead a lovely, busy, flourishing, thriving life. Okay. I don't understand why we're talking about polio with you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like,
4: what is polio in your life? What does it mean to you? Well, it is who I am since childhood. Polio has been with me all my life, since uh, I was about two or three. I don't know exactly when. What do you know about your story? I know you were very young. Do you even know how you got it?
15: Do you know no. anything about the circumstances?
4: There were four children in my family. I was the middle one. From my mother, I was told. From infancy there was something about my right leg and then when it came to walking I wasn't making an effort the little foot wasn't growing right either compared to the other so my aunt who was a nun in South Africa and she was a nurse she came home on holiday and she just looked at this infant in the pram and she said to my mother straight away that child has polio we lived in Limerick there were absolutely no facilities in those days I'm going back to the 40s so I was sent up to the orthopedic hospital at Clontarf now from about three Until 14, I was in Clontarf. I'd be there for three months, come home for three, back and forth. Longest I was ever there was a year. So my entire life was more in hospital than at home. Like what happened magically at 14 then? I had a final operation at 14 and I was sent home with the boots and the splint thing. And that was it. Your family was in Limerick. How often did the family get to come and see you? I seldom had visitors. Only once was my mother able to visit, and another occasion, my father. When you were three? Yeah. And four and five? Yeah, never saw your parents, no. You were on your own in this hospital? Yes, you went to theatre and had operations on your own. It was nobody. You must remember, I'm talking about war years... 1940s there was no money to travel from limerick to dublin was as same as if you said i'm going to japan in the morning it was out of the question wow that's anne and anne also was telling evelyn about the post polio survivor support group i was in john leary and i was just walking past shaw's and i was looking in the window and i looked and i said what's wrong with that woman i didn't realize that i walked with such a bad limp It had got very bad over the years, and that knocked me for six. Things were deteriorating a lot. I was tired at all these things. Anyway, I eventually was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, which is the late effects of polio, what it's called. The muscles are getting weaker, and that meant then I had to do a lot of rethinking. My whole focus was to keep myself as well as I could. This was with me. You can lie down under it, or you can say, I have to get up and go. So I do everything I possibly can, but I have a bit of common sense and I know things that I can't do now. For example, wearing the shoes, I can't wear the high heels. Does everybody who had polio get post-polio? No, only a certain percentage, maybe 60%. I didn't know about post-polio. Didn't until it happened to me, sure. Really? So yeah. no
15: doctor had warned you and said, no, look, watch no,
4: out for No, 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 no. But I look at it this way. I have a post-polio support group. At least I can go to someone and say, can you give me something that will help me to walk better? One stage I walked with nothing, then I walked with one stick. I know that I will eventually have to have a wheelchair. So I'm taking it step by step. I'm at the stage now of the two poles and I manage with them. And the legacy of it, what do you want now to support you now? The polio survivors are older now, so we have two things to cope with. First of all, the disability. Those of us have the post-polio syndrome, our needs are getting more as we get older, because we're all of an age. And because we are, let's say, the last of these terrible epidemics, people say, oh, sure, polio, it's gone. It's not gone. We're still here. But I really think we deserve to be minded just because we're a smaller group. We don't need to be forgotten.
0: Anne Shanahan there and Evan also spoke to Eddie.
15: Yes, I left Anne and carried on to Eddie Roycroft, another lovely man who was just three and a half when he contracted polio, also sent into isolated care. He also had wonderful family life. But here I got to talk to Eddie, who's really restricted in his movement now. He invited me into his home, Claire, just to share more about his story
7: of polio. Oh, hello Evelyn. Hi Eddie, how are you? I'm Yourself. not too bad. And you're walking there on your stick? I am. I use my stick most times. Okay. Yes. Grab
15: a seat. Well, I'll sit in your seat now. I can see you've got a very comfortable seat lined up oh, there. That's, that's me throwing. Thank you so much for welcoming us into your home today. I am really grateful. And I suppose the reason we want to talk to you is about these stories that are in the book. People surviving from polio. Is that why you wanted to get involved?
7: It is. Most people have put it out of their minds. It's a thing that happens years back. And it's funny, I can go to a hospital where they've never heard polio or post-polio. I got it when I was three and a half. I was in the hospital in Cherry Archer for 18 months. They put me on physio. Then when I was about nine or ten, the doctors just said to me, ma'am, nothing else we can do, just let him get on with life. And I had a, a bit of a limp and that was about it. I want you to bring me back
15: to when you were three and a half. What I presume you don't remember a lot, but what you've been told happened.
7: When I was three and a half, I lived in Finglas, and my mum thought that I had a cold or the flu, and then she started to get worried. She brought me to a doctor, and the doctor got me shifted over to Cherry Orchard. So he was suspicious? He was suspicious because at that time there was an outbreak of polio. You had pains in your legs and all.
15: She heard Cherry Orchard, and your mum knew what that meant.
7: Yeah, you were kept separate from everybody. When my mother or my father came over of to the visit, they had to stay either outside where those last look looking at me, or there was a rope put up that they couldn't cross the rope. You were three
15: and a half. You were yeah. left on your own for treatment.
7: Yeah, I had four sisters who i never seen for the year and a half. And I think that's why we have a close-knit family, for their children and their grandchildren gosh.
12: Um, Eddie wants to talk as well about this because he and others believe that post-polio, the later effect of polio that we heard there from Anne earlier on on their lives, that that just needs to be highlighted now. Yeah, they say people know so little about post-polio, they indeed didn't know themselves about
15: it and they want people to, to think about it because, you know, people think it's been eradicated and thankfully for new generations with the help of vaccines that is the fact, but these guys have published a book and it's called Polio in Clare and it's personal stories of polio survivors in Ireland and, you know, these stories in others are in it it's a great read and you can buy it online from their website polio.ie but here eddie talks about post-polio, post-polio and the survivors resilience and their attitude to life and really again with eddie it's remarkable stuff
7: so i got on with life and i was walking away all different jobs not a bother then when i was about 50 i got aches in my side i needed to get it checked out all the hardy she examined me she told me literally inside out then one day she said there's nothing wrong with your kidneys and she just asked about any other illness in my life and i just said polio when it was three and a half oh she said that could be a problem so she said you have post polio until then i didn't know
15: have you ever had any kind of compensation allowances oh no
7: to be honest the state will give us nothing nothing for polio people it's not a, a qualifying illness in the sense that they don't recognise it. And as I've often said, we're a dying breed. We're dying off. It's very hard. Now, I find it hard to walk now, gradually getting worse. But I don't moan to people that I have this and this is what I do, I just get on with life.
15: So what you're saying to me is that all these years later, polio had a second go at you. This is the post-polio yes. bit. Yes,
7: when she told me about the post-polio. You've I never just heard of it? Never heard of
15: it. Can I ask you then about COVID, right? Because the rest of the world, Got a little taste of what you went through at the age of three and a half.
7: And it was hard for everyone, mm. not being able to do things, cut off from our grandchildren and our children. That was hard, and I kind of understand how my mother felt. But you know, it's it's hard to express the polio after effects of polio. But post polio group is very important because we have about 80 people. We're able then to talk about what we have. You know what we're suffering from. And every one of us, it's getting worse. But I think that's the best thing about Postbolio. The group, I have yet to meet a happier group of people. Because we've learned through our lives, just get on with it.
0: That's Eddie talking to Evelyn O'Rourke from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Joe was going back to the changes for volunteers for the Citizens Advice Service.
10: Volunteers and the Citizens Information Service may be on the run, so to speak, because it seems they're not wanted, as we emerged here last week on uh, LiveLine, but they haven't gone away by any stretch of the imagination. They're highly competent, highly qualified people, a lot of them retired, all giving their time freely and with great expertise and As you heard on Liveline last week, they are deeply, deeply upset with the decision by the management in the headquarters of the Citizens Information Service in Townsend Street in Dublin, a decision basically to get rid of volunteers. Now, um, Susan, good afternoon. Susan Dowling.
16: Good afternoon,
10: Joanne. Thank
16: you for having me.
10: Tell us about your situation, Susan.
16: Well, I've been a volunteer in the Citizens Information Centre in Kilkenny for the last 20 years. And I'm absolutely appalled at this decision by the Citizens' Information Board in Dublin, who are the funders of the Citizens' Information Mm -hmm. Services, to uh, withdraw the services of volunteers for providing information. I joined this service. I went for an interview. I took part in the initial training. Mm -hmm. I did training courses all along the way. And I have kept up to date with everything. And now they have delivered me this slap in the face that apparently I am incapable of doing the job for which I volunteered. And from a personal perspective, I'm very hurt and very upset about it. But I'm also very Mm -hmm. upset because I can see the consequences of this, what it's going to be for the service. This is a really valuable service, Joe.
14: Um,
16: People being able to come and look for information and advice and advocacy on matters which affect them that can be life-changing. They need that service, and they want to be able to come to their local centre and get that. But if the volunteers who provide mm-hmm. 50% of the manpower in Kilkenny for doing that, if they are not going to be allowed to give information, then the paid staff are not going to be able to cope, and that is going to reduce cause uh, reduced opening times people having to leave messages on answering machines for callbacks, sending emails, goodness knows when they're going to be answered. Yeah, 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 and it's going to have a huge effect on the way the centres uh, so, operate. So what have
10: you been told, so, Susan, what's happening to, to the Kilkenny Centre? Is it full-time staff? or?
16: Um, there, are, there are two full-time information uh, providers and one part-time information provider. But when I was in there last week, um, there was just one information officer and myself, and we opened the door. It wasn't a particularly busy afternoon compared to what we were used to before the pandemic, Um, but there were three people waiting outside the door, and in they came, and we started to deal with them, and more came, and the phone was ringing, and the emails were coming in, And at three o'clock, we had to shut the door because we knew we could not cope with any more.
0: That's Susan on the live line with Joe Duffy. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.